Well, here we are again. This is Bob Mallon, Audio Information Network of Colorado, bringing you today's edition of Military News. Oh, I'm dictating this on the 13th of June. It's 90 plus degrees out, fair and sunny. And looking at my calendar screen, in less than a week, believe it or not, the days will be actually starting to get shorter. At least one minute less, anyway. But it's a sign of the times. Let's start off with military news. Uh, again, our website, militarynews.com. The first article is entitled F-16 Pilots Runway Death Forces Reckoning Over Tight Flight Hours and Training Gaps Posted 12 June 2021 Military.com There's an editor's note here and it says this is the first of a two-part series about the fatal accident of First Lieutenant David Schmitz an F-16 pilot at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina. Valerie Rudolph wasn't the waitress assigned to a table full of Air Force C-17 Globemaster III pilots and loadmasters taking a dinner break at Olive Garden while in Las Cruces, New Mexico for a military exercise in 2011. But her friend, who was taking care of the table, slipped a napkin with Valerie's name and number to one of the loadmasters, David Schmitz. If he doesn't call you, I thought, who cares? You're not going to see him again, Valerie said, deciding to take a chance instead. She saw him that very night on their first date, during which Schmitz was opened about his aspirations. I'm going to finish my degree, and I'm going to go to officer's training school, and I'm going to become a pilot, she recalled him saying. Flash forward to June 30, 2020, Valerie, who'd been David's wife for seven years by then, got a knock on the door in the middle of the night at their Sumter, South Carolina home. She thought her husband, a newly minted F-16 Fighting Falcon pilot, had forgotten his keys, but it was representatives from Shaw Air Force Base, David's home station, coming to tell her that he was dead. While on a nighttime training mission, Schmitz, assigned to the 77th Fighter Squadron, could not recover his F-16 after he severely damaged the aircraft's landing gear upon touching down, striking an antenna array short of the runway. He attempted an ill-advised cable arrest with his mangled gear, as suggested by members in the control tower, then tried to eject as his left wing hit the runway, according to an accident investigation report released in November. The ejection seat malfunctioned. He died instantly. He was 32 years old. Schmitz's tragic, tragic death underscores the inherent risk of fighter training, but it also casts a harsh light on the impacts of limited flight hours and insufficient training 
due to limited available aircraft and the demands of real-life missions. Despite the best efforts of the Air Force and Congress to understand what causes catastrophic aviation mishaps, it is clear that a lot of work remains to be done. Schmidt's focus that night was split between two missions. He was part of a four-aircraft group conducting an air-to-air -air refueling from KC-135 Stratotanker and a suppression of enemy air defense simulation. While it was not unusual to combine events, the Air Force said Schmitz had no prior experience with either. Part of that training, particularly a fighter coordinating air-to-air -air refueling, was supposed to take place before Schmitz got to Shaw. It didn't. He was unable to successfully refuel that night despite his attempts. Shaw had drastically limited flying operations in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Schmitz had spent just eight hours in his jet in the 30 days before the accident, according to the accident report. And throughout his training, he had racked up only 12 night flights total in the F-16 with just two at Shaw. Schmitz arrived at Shaw from the F-16B course at Holman Air Force Base, New Mexico, just that January and had only a few weeks training in the air before the temporary stoppage. He was supposed to receive in-flight refueling experience at the B course, which was his formal training unit, but he did not. The investigation stated that these factors contributed to the already complicated task of executing these events without prior experience. As a result, a relatively routine training, a relatively routine training session turned fatal. The crash had gotten the attention of at least one lawmaker who wants confirmation this doesn't happen again in the wake of Schmidt's death. The leadership of Schmidt's at Shaw must ensure that the first air-to-air -air refueling and first suppression of enemy air defense training sorties are not done at night. Representative Ken Calvert, a California Republican, who has been in touch with the Schmitz family, told Military.com. The investigation concluded, pilots can have their first air-to-air -air refueling only if accomplished in a two-seater jet with an instructor present. Otherwise, daytime is preferred. The Air Force review their risk management process to improve its effectiveness in determining safe training conditions, Calvert said. They must review that. Major General March Slocum, Air Combat Command Director of Air and Space Operations, said, the Air Force is committed to preventing any more accidents like Schmitz's. Through multiple Air Force-wide leadership conferences, major command events, and several directives, 
issued to combat flying squadrons, we have worked with leadership at all levels to apply the lessons from this tragic accident beyond just F-16 community and to all applicable weapon systems in order to minimize risk to our aircrew, Slocum said in a statement. Over the last year, pilots have worked more with refueling tankers to make sure they are proficient in the skill, according to Colonel Lawrence Sullivan, commander of the 20th Fighter, Week Fighter Wing at Shaw. While those introductory skill sets are often taught at a training base, not a combat-coded F-16 unit, we spent some of our own wing funds to have them come up and park tankers up on our ramp here at Shaw and then fly with us multiple times a day with multiple jets, Sullivan said in an interview last month which is a little bit of an anomaly. Air Education and Training Command, or AETC, which oversees the majority of the pilot training pipeline for the service, has requested additional tanker support to F-16, F-22 Raptor, and F-35 Lightning II formal training units, where pilots are assigned to their official aircraft following undergraduate pilot training to ensure adequate training is available. The command said that in a statement Friday. Lost training time, dwindling opportunity is the title of the next segment. Schmitz, a California native, received his pilot's license at age 17. He enlisted in the Air Force soon after and served as a C-17 loadmaster, achieving the rank of Staff Sergeant, according to the service. He completed his undergraduate degrees in aeronautics through Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, minoring in aviation safety, Valerie said. As a loadmaster assigned to Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington, Schmitz took Valerie up in his Cessna on what she called a remarkable date night, during which he mused that he would perhaps someday teach pilot students of his own. He was so goal-driven and motivated and just, this is what I'm doing, I'm going to do it, this is my journey, Valerie said. Schmitz was selected to attend officer training school in 2016. A year later, he trained on the T-6 Texan II and then the T-38 Talon. He was distinguished graduate from undergraduate pilot training at Joint Base San Antonio-Lackland, Texas, according to the Air Force. During introduction to fighter fundamentals, an eight-week course for pilots, after they earned their wings, Schmitz earned the Top Gun Award for exceptional air-to-air -air training. At the time of the accident, Schmidt was a current and qualified F-16 pilot undergoing Mission Qualification Training, or MQT, when students are trained to be combat-ready pilots. He was graded as slightly above average and was nearing his 100th flight hour in that fighter jet.
Shaw receives new pilots almost every week, Sullivan said, meaning that of the 120 F-16 pilots based there, up to a dozen are going through mission qualification training at any one given time. He was approximately two-thirds of the way through his qualification training on his way to becoming mission-ready, Sullivan said about Schmitz. Valerie said that Schmitz's squadron was getting ready to deploy sometime that fall. AETC acknowledged that certain formal training units, or FTUs, have seen a shift in training over the years, primarily during times of increased deployments to the Middle East. FTUs saw weeks added to their course load in lieu of MQT at an operational base. In 2018, Air Force General Mike Holmes, the head of the Air Combat Command, dictated that FTU course lengthen return to the standard six-month time frame. As a result, some of the advanced tasks that had migrated to the formal training unit shifted back to the OPS units, AETC said. As a consequence of this shift, operational units have had to modify their mission-qualified training programs to reflect the additional training request. Guidance reminds, and guidance remains, that is, that FTUs will teach basic and fundamental skills, while operational units will teach advanced techniques and tactics, command officials said. Valerie is remembered Schmidt's monitoring he had not received, start again there, Valerie remembered Schmidt's mentioning he had not received the in-flight refueling training because of tanker unavailability. It was a requirement meant to be fulfilled during the day, not at night, prior to heading off to an operative unit. He kind of explained to me that, well, they got all my records and they'll see, Valerie said, adding that Schmitz anticipated he would complete the training later at Shaw. On the night of the accident, the mission flight lead pilot increasingly filled out his risk management worksheet. He filled it out incorrectly, which estimates the amount of risk before an event, evaluating factors such as experience, weather, and other conditions. The accident report said Shaw, which houses three F-16 operational squadron, creates syllabi for each new pilot, tailoring it to what they need to accomplish to be fully qualified. It takes time, Sullivan said. Traditionally, that upgrade program has taken 90 days. We've received a waiver extension to do that for 120 days, just based on the number of young pilots that we have. The delays in the schedule based on the experience shortage, he said. It takes old, experienced pilots to lead the young pilots around and teach them these skill sets. The ratios are backward. 
we look at it at, an ex at experienced and inexperienced ratios and squadrons. Sullivan continued, and a lot, and for a lot of reasons, a healthy substantial mix is about 60% experienced and maybe 40% inexperienced. The pilot shortage has sometimes inverted these ratios, and there's just not as many training opportunities. He was referring to the service's year-long pilot shortage and efforts to train more aviators. Next is entitled Unexceptionable Metrics. How many flight opportunities exist is often out of commander's control, said retired General Herbert Hawke Carlyle, an F-15 Eagle pilot who led Air Combat Command between 2014 and 2017. Muscle memory and learning, and learning and repetition, is incredibly important, Carlyle said in an interview Friday. Schedules aren't always going to align as tankers and fighters are busy with operations worldwide and may be unavailable to do training events, he explained. Breaks in training due to deployments or unforeseen circumstances like COVID-19, depending on training delay, you don't have as many sorties available. Referring to Schmitz's accident, Carlyle noted that night sorties are key to mastering that training because depth perception is significantly different at night. Pilots have been getting fewer flight hours for years now, Carlyle said. While the service has stressed a demand to boost readiness and mission capability, Total pilot flight hours, including those supporting warfighting overseas, decreased from 1.33 million in 2020 to 1.24 million in 2021. In its fiscal 2022 budget requests, the Air Force plans to shave that down even further, from 1.24 million to 1.15 million according to budget documents looked at. Top service leaders have cited progress in keeping pilots in the service longer because of the pandemic economy, but have chosen not to increase cockpit hours. A decreased military footprint overseas contributes to that diminished flight necessity to a certain extent, Major General James D. Percolia, the Air Force Deputy Assistant Secretary overseeing the budget, said on May 28th. Last year, we reduced the flying hours to actually execute more in line with what we can do in each given fiscal year, Percolia said, and he told this to reporters during a briefing on the budget request. In fiscal year 2022, we've done the same thing, but we've taken just a bit more risk in the flying hours for peacetime flying. Rest assured, I'll be advocating to reject the proposed cut in flight training hours, Calvert the Congressman said. There are multiple components. One of them is time. Look at the deployment tempo 
Certainly, leading up to where we are today, Carlyle said, of a strained and overworked force. Shaving down flying hours, part of that isn't that they cut the flying hours because they want to, it's because it's unexecutable, he added, saying that Air Force continually needs to fix older airplanes to keep them ready for flight. Following a spike in deadly crashes in 2018, a congressionally mandated commission last year told lawmakers and the Defense Department more action is needed. The National Commission on Military Aviation Safety in December released a report on aviation accidents from 2013 to 2018, showing that inadequate management and often overlooked shortfalls in training and experience can be tied to the surge in accidents. The Commission recommended restoring flight time for pilots to previous levels, if not actually boosting it. Air Force pilots learning to fly the F-16 in 2018 had 28.1 fewer flight hours as compared to a pilot train just eight years earlier, the report found. While some of this time was replaced by additional simulator hours, a pilot in 2018 would report to their operational unit with significantly less flight experience. 20 flight hours were cut from the syllabus. This reduction in training impacted operational flying units. The study concluded that military avi aviation accidents had claimed the lives of 198 pilots. While it was being compiled between 2019 and 2020, another 26 pilots died across the military services. Schmitz was one of them. Next is nearly one year. In the days leading up to the one-year anniversary of his death, Valerie reflected on what could have been done differently. From the beginning, he shouldn't have been scheduled to do those events at night for the first time ever, she said. Carlyle agreed, saying that Schmitz should have been trained on a daytime refueling first. You got to work hard to not let these things happen, he said. The Schmitz family will return to Shaw to attend a 5K later this month in David's honor. They have created a foundation that gives scholarships to those who want to pursue a career in aviation, but cannot afford to do so. On February 17th, David's birthday, the foundation awarded 24 scholarships in his name. Valerie hopes the instructor pilots and commanders are taking specific interest in each of their pilots to make sure they are ready not neglecting or overloading or overlooking where important improvements could be made. We've got this new pilot in the squadron. He's fresh out of S-16B course. He hasn't done aerial refueling yet. Hasn't been doing a whole lot of flying lately due to COVID, she said. From a training standpoint, I just hope they make sure that training continues to be crib progressive. Don't skip steps. I don't think it's fair to the pilots. 
I know I only have David's case as an example to really go off of, but it does make me wonder. I kissed my husband goodbye that morning. I watched him walk down the hallway and leave. I didn't know it was going to be the last time I'd see him, Valerie recalled. She said she knew what he was going to do the night was going to be challenging. But in typical fashion, David Schmitz, Valerie said, he said, all right, let's just go do this. This next article from Military.com Military News, Small Arms Training, Alaskan Missile Field, Department of Defense Detail Projects, were funded by border wall cancellation. Posted 11 June 2020 by Stephen Losey. The Defense Department on Friday detailed how it plans to spend nearly $2.2 billion it recovered after canceling border wall reconstruction progress that the Trump administration refunded with money diverted from military projects. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks included the plans in a memo dated Thursday, formalizing the Pentagon's attention to redirect the money to 66 military project in 16 countries, 11 states, and three territories. The unobligated money the DOD was able to recover is a fraction of what had been steered toward the border wall. ABC News reported in April that a Biden administration official said that amounted to more than $14 billion that had been diverted. The bulk of the recovered money, nearly $1.3 billion, will go to projects at overseas bases, including more than $125 million to replace elementary school at Robinson Barracks and Spangdalam Air Base in Germany, and nearly $135 million for Bechtel Elementary and Kinnick High School in Japan. Other overseas projects included $70 million for an air traffic control terminal at the Army's garrison on Kwajalein Atoll, part of the Marshall Islands. $66 million for upgrades to a taxiway and apron the Navy uses for P-8A Poseidon aircraft in Italy and $53 million for an electrical system upgrade for Navy facilities on Bahrain Island. Projects for military facilities in the U.S. territories of Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands will get more than $608 million. Among those projects, an aircraft maintenance hangar used by the Puerto Rican National Guard will receive $64 million, and the National Guard Readiness Center in Puerto Rico will get $50 million. The Air Force Munitions Storage Igloos on Guam will get $28.6 million, the memo stated. Stateside bases will receive almost $300 million, including funds for road maintenance facilities for Navy ships and piers, fire stations and a dining facility, among others. 
Fort Greeley in Alaska will get $10 million in funding for a missile field expansion to add two interceptors intended to stop a North Korean attack. The Office of Management and Budget said that in a release. And an Air National Guard facility in Indiana will get $9.4 million for a small arms range to improve marksmanship training. In a press briefing with reporters, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said that the Trump administration had canceled 123 military projects to redirect funds for the border wall. He added, the Pentagon consulted with the services and operational commanders before restoring funding to projects to make sure that requirements had not been changed. What did this all across department to make sure that we chose those carefully, he said. Hicks canceled spending on the border wall in an April 20th memo, ordering the Army to end all border barrier construction projects, give up lands that the Interior Department set aside for those projects, and transfer jurisdiction of those properties to the Homeland Security Department. She also told Homeland Security that the DOD would not build any more fences, roads, or lightning installations at the southern border under Section 284 of Title 10 of the U.S. Code, which can be used to authorize the military to perform such functions to support civilian law enforcement agencies as they block drug smuggling corridors across the border. Canceling Section 284 border barrier projects is consistent with the President's determination that building a massive wall that spans the entire southern border is not a serious policy solution to the security challenge at the service correction at the southern border, Hicks said in an April memo. The title of the next article from Military.com, Two Louisiana Guard Soldiers Deployed Overseas Die Six Days Apart in Non-Combat Incidents. Posted 11 June 2021 by Stephen Byron. Two deployed Louisiana National Guard soldiers died in unrelated incidents in different countries this week, according to Defense Department officials. Specialist Joshua Robinson, 22, of Baton Rouge, died Thursday at Camp Buring, Kuwait, as a result of a non-combat incident. The Pentagon did not issue details on what led to his death. The incident is under investigation. Officials with the Louisiana National Guard did not immediately return a request for comment or provide Robinson's career record. He served with the 3rd Battalion, 156th Infantry Regiment within the Louisiana Army National Guard based in Lake Charles. On Tuesday, 1st Sergeant Casey Hart, 42, of Baton Rouge, died at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, 
after a non-combat incident at El Tanif Garrison, Syria, on May 9th. Hart also served with the 156th Infantry Regiment, but in the 2nd Battalion. The specific surroundings Hart's incident are also under investigation, according to a statement from the Pentagon. WAFB9, a Baton Rouge news outlet, reported that he went into cardiac arrest while running last month. Hart, a motorman, enlisted in the Army in July 1997. He joined the Louisiana National Guard in May 2000. He was also a 14-year veteran of the Baton Rouge Police Department. Here's the next article from Military.com called Air Force Adjusts New Hair Standards for Women After Feedback, posted 11 June 2021 by Stephen Losey. The Air Force said Friday that it is revising its new, looser regulations governing how female airmen may wear their hair after getting feedback from women in the field. In February, the service began allowing women to wear their hair in up to two braids or a single ponytail, as long as it did not exceed the width of their heads or extend past the bottom of their shoulder blades. But, beginning June 25, the Air Force said in a Friday release, women's hair may extend further when it is secured behind the head in a bun braid or ponytail, or other similar hairstyle. Women's hair then will be allowed to extend to a total width of 12 inches, 6 inches to each side from the center of the head, and 6 inches protruding from the point where the hair is gathered, the Air Force said. Women still must be able to properly wear hats or other headgear, if their hair extends beyond the width of their heads, the service said. After Air Force first announced the changes to hair regulations in February, some women pointed out that they would have difficulty securing their hair in a way that did not extend beyond the width of their heads. Sometimes we get caught right the first time around and sometimes it takes another iteration to arrive at the best solution, Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles C.Q. Brown said in a tweet announcing the changes. The feedback we received highlighted the need to reevaluate the policy to make it more inclusive. Lieutenant General Brian Kelly, the Air Force's Deputy Chief of Staff for Manpower, personnel services, acknowledged in the release that the service hadn't considered how the hairstyle rules would affect all female airmen. In a developing policy, we try to address all angles and perspectives, but sometimes we have a blind spot, Kelly said. The revised hair regulations, along with all other Air Force grooming standards, also will apply to women in the Space Force until the new service sets its own grooming policies. Women still must follow occupational safety, fire and health guidance, and mishap prevention procedures 
when considering how to wear their hair around machinery or equipment, the Air Force said. The service last year consulted a diverse group of male and female troops, including officers and enlisted, from various ethnics and occupations as it set out to revise women's hairstyles and other dress and appearance regulations to make them more inclusive. Whether we're talking about hair, uniforms, or forums for sharing ideas, an approach that embraces diversity and forces an inclusive environment is critical to ensuring our talented, dedicated airmen stay with us on this journey, Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force Joanne Bass said in a press release. Next is a medical-oriented article from Military.com entitled Inflammation in Young Adults After COVID-19 Vaccine. Posted 11 June 2021 by Patricia Kamey. Some 789 Americans have reported heart inflammation following their mRNA COVID-19 vaccinations, and 275 of these cases are in ages 16 to 24, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention said on Thursday. To date, 143 million Americans have received the vaccine. The cases of inflammation known as myocarditis in young Americans exceeded the expected amount, said Dr. Tom Shimabukuro with the CDC's Immunization Safety Office in a Thursday briefing. The CDC had put the expected rate between 10 and 102 cases. Given the near, that nearly half of all American adults have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, the occurrence remains a rare event. But it warrants following, Shimabukuro said. CDC officials also said they plan to hold an emergency meeting on June 18th to discuss the cases. It's still early, we're still gathering information, and I believe we will ultimately have sufficient information to answer questions. We will have updated information next Friday that will put it in the center and context of benefit and risk, he said. The findings, he added, are consistent with surveillance data that has emerged from Israel as well as case series reports and the Department of Defense. According to the briefing, the majority of myocarditis cases were reported in men, in individuals who received a second vaccination, and in those who received the Pfizer vaccination, which Shimabukuro said has been used in more Americans than the Moderna vaccine. The median time to the onset of inflammation symptoms is two to three days, he added. The briefing was conducted as part of a review to discuss safety issues of the COVID-19 vaccines in pediatric patients. The CDC began looking into cases of myocarditis 
in a smaller number of Americans vaccine, vaccinated against COVID-19 in late May. The move followed an announcement in late April by Israel's health ministry that it was reviewing cases of myocarditis in young people after they received the Pfizer vaccine, and an April 24 report by Military.com of 14 cases being tracked within the Department of Defense hotel system, make that health system. The Department of Defense now has at least 17 cases reported. During Thursday's briefing, Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologic Evaluation and Research, cautioned that his organization still doesn't know whether this is truly related to the vaccine or not. Myocarditis can be caused by a virus, and cases have been linked to COVID-19, but several of the individuals reported to the CDC tested negative for COVID-19 at the time of their diagnosis. According to the CDC, 81% of the reported cases still that they were reviewed have made a full recovery as of May 31. 15 people were made hospitalized and three in intensive care. Hospital officials maintain that the risk of contracting a severe case of COVID-19 currently outweighs any risk associated with the vaccine. Next we have NATO leaders bid symbolic adieu to Afghanistan at the summit meeting. Posted 13 January 2021 by Alarni Cook, Brussels. U.S. President Joe Biden and his NATO counterparts will bid a symbolic farewell to Afghanistan on Monday in their last summit before America winds up its longest forever war and the U.S. military pulls out for good. The meeting is bound to renew questions about whether NATO's most ambitious operation was ever worth it. The 18-year effort cost the United States alone $2.26 trillion, and the price in lives included 2,442 American troops and 1,144 personnel among U.S. allies, according to figures from Brown University. NATO does not keep a record of those who die in its operations. Those casualty figures dwarf Afghan losses, which include more than 47,000 civilians, up to 69,000 members of the National Armed Forces and Police, and over 51,000 opposition fighters. The military effort followed the 2001 arrival of a U.S.-led coalition that ousted the Taliban for harboring al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Few experts argue that it brought long-term stability, meaningful democracy, or it brought security. At this point, you get the impression that NATO leaders almost want to downplay and leave quietly, rather than making too big a deal of it and going on to focus on other business, said Eric Brathberg, 
Director of Europe Program at the Cambridge Endowment for International Peace. And make that the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With the U.S. leading the withdrawal, European allies and Canada want to hear Biden's thinking about how security will be assured at the embassies along major transport routes and above all at Kabul's airport. Many wonder whether the Afghan government can survive a resurgent Taliban. Some think Kabul's capitulation is only a matter of time. We are currently in intense negotiations with our member states, the United States, NATO, and the United Nations, on the absence of essential security conditions for our continued diplomatic presence. It will be difficult to keep it in place, European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell said. For now, NATO plans to leave civilian advisors to help build up government institutions. It's unclear who will protect them. The 30-nation alliance is also weighing whether to train Afghan special forces outside of the country. As an organization, NATO will not provide security for Afghans who work alongside its forces, routinely risking their lives. Although a few individual members will, NATO Secretary General John Stoltenberg says it's simply time to leave. Afghan has come a long way, both when it comes to building strong, capable security forces, but also when it comes to social and economic progress. He told this to the Associated Press. At some stage, it has to be the Afghans that take full responsibility for peace and stability in their own country. Few Afghans share that assessment of their country which has a 54% poverty rate, runaway crime, rampant corruption, and an illicit economy that outstrips the legal economy. When NATO took charge of international security operations in 2003, Afghan was its first major mission outside Europe and North America. The aim was to stabilize the government, build up local security forces, and remove a potential base for extremist groups. Yet, 18 years later, security is at its lowest ebb for most Afghans. The capital is rife with, with criminal gangs, many linked to powerful warlords, and there are routine attacks by an upstart Islamic State. Quite early into the operations, as combat took its toll on NATO troops, extremists and civilians who also were killed, a stalemate developed. The Taliban could not be routed from outlying areas, but neither could its fighters seize and hold major cities. Troop surges made little difference, and it soon became clear that NATO's military training efforts was its exit strategy. Only by creating a big army capable of standing on its own feet could the organization wind up its operations. But 
The Afghan army was played by corruption, desertion, and low morale. Experts say it still is. And this remains a major concern as NATO insists on funding the nation's security forces after it is gone. Donald Trump's unilateral decision to leave by May 1st stunned U.S. allies. It heightened NATO's weakness. European members and Canadian members simply cannot sustain major operations without logistical support from their biggest partner. Biden's decision to pull U.S. troops out by the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington changed little, although he did consult allies this time. James Dobbin, a former Afghan envoy, who now works for the RAND Corporation think tank, predicts the exit will mean the loss of government legitimacy. The U.S. departure will be seen as a victory for the Taliban and a defeat for the United States, he said in an an opinion piece. The result will be a blow to American credibility, the weakening of deterrence, and the value of American reassurance elsewhere. On Monday, NATO's leaders will affirm the strength of their allegiance and alliance and go back to what they knew best, their old nemesis Russia and China. Biden will brief his partners before meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani was not invited to NATO's summit. There is little appetite left to continue investing in Afghanistan, Bratberg said. There is a sense of being fed up in a lot of NATO countries, and now it's just time to pack the bags and get out with little consideration about the consequences that could have formed on the ground. Another article refers to the NATO and Developed Nations Summit that just concluded. The article is called Caution on Iran Nuclear Deal as G7 Leaders Vow to Stop Bomb. Posted 13 June 2021, Vienna. Diplomats from outside the European Union cautioned Sunday that negotiations with, our, negotiations with Iran to salvage a landmark nuclear deal still need more time, as leaders of the group of seven wealthy nations reaffirmed a commitment to stop the Islamic Republic from building nuclear weapons. Iranian envoys held another round of negotiations with international delegations in Vienna a day after EU coordinators suggested that differences over the 2015 accord limiting Iran's nuclear activities had narrowed further down. But Iranian Deputy Foreign Minister Abbas Aragani told Iranian state media he thought a deal was unlikely to emerge in the coming week. A diplomat from Russia also said more time was needed to work out details. The Vienna meetings are aimed at rebuilding a nuclear containment agreement between Iran and major world powers that the Trump administration withdrew the United States from in 2018. 
U.S. President Joe Biden and other G7 leaders expressed support for the Vienna, for the Vienna process after a three-day summit in southwest England that ended Sunday. The G7 nations are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. We are committed to ensuring that Iran will never develop a nuclear weapon, the leaders said in a joint statement. A restored and fully implemented nuclear deal could also pave the way to further address regional and security concerns, the statement said. A resolution would see Iran return to commitments made in 2015 aimed at making the development of a nuclear weapon impossible in exchange for lighter sanctions. Sunday's bilateral meetings followed joint negotiations held Saturday involving senior diplomats from China, Germany, France, Russia, and Britain. The United States was not directly involved in this. Well, that's going to be about all of it for this session. Again, this is Bob Mallon from Audio Information Network of Colorado and Military News signing off. Be good to yourselves and talk to you next time. The Center Towards Self-Reliance empowers people with disabilities throughout South and Southeastern Colorado to function as independently as possible and to be active contributing members of society. They practice the five core services established by the National Council on Independent Living, advocacy, peer support, independent living skills, information and referral, and transition services. They empower people through comprehensive programs, including services for the blind and visually impaired, eyeglasses assistance, deaf services, installation of ramps and grab bars, food pantries, housing, home health care, nursing home transition services, and youth services. Call 719-546-1271. They have offices in Pueblo, Alamosa, Canyon City, Huerfano, and Los Animas counties. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Audio Information Network of Colorado. Listen, learn, connect. This is Primetime Postscript. I'm Mike Cuthbert. The work of the Army's legendary 10th Mountain Division, which pioneered winter warfare during World War II, has been passed down to the 10th Special Forces Group from Fort Carson, Colorado. Earlier this winter, a few hundred soldiers headed up to train at Monarch Mountain near Salida, Colorado. The soldiers only have five days on the slopes to get competent, regardless of their ski experience. Reporter Shauna Lewis grabbed her skis and headed out to file this report. Have you ever skied before you were in the military? I couldn't even tell you what a pair of skis were, man. Yeah, have you been falling a lot? Oh, yeah. How many times do you think you've fallen? Uh, easy triple digits. Guys in military gray are everywhere at Monarch. Some zoom down the most extreme expert runs, while others wobble across the bunny hill, struggling to stay vertical. All right, Z, I see one good one right here. See a good one. Up, down. Bend that downhill knee a little more. There you go. 
Staff Sergeant Russell Rogers coaches his group of never-evers. These are the guys who never skied until this training. He encourages them, but he doesn't cut them any slack. After only a few days on skis, they're crashing through a bump run wearing heavy backpacks. Major Sean Williams, the officer in charge of the winter training, says it's not about learning to be pretty skiers. Uh, we've got to be able to uh, traverse up the side of a mountain, um, through deep snow, in and out of trees, with heavy packs. The soldiers, all of the men in this training, need to be able to react quickly and take cover. If a man gets his skis caught on a tree stump, or if he falls and can't get up, it could jeopardize his safety and that of his team. But the skiing is only part of it, says Captain Ted Morton, who's just come in from the backcountry. The biggest challenge that we would face with guys are guys who just basically don't know what to wear. They don't know how to like keep themselves warm. Is it? It seems like a no-brainer, but it's it's a it's a unique skill being able to live out in this kind of environment. After nearly a week of practice time on Monarch ski runs, the soldiers spend two days in the backcountry camping in snow caves or tents and learning about avalanche safety. They have to get familiar with the special mountaineering skis, too. The bindings on these skis allow the soldiers' heels to move up and down when they're cross-country skiing. Then they lock their heels in place to ski downhill, or for ski-joring, getting towed by what the military calls mobile over-the-snow transports, better known to the rest of us as snowmobiles. Well, we gotta, we gotta use the snowmobiles pretty much as a whole group to, to move everybody in one shot. But most of the time, the soldiers carry everything they need without the help of a snowmobile. Weapons, ammunition, communications equipment, medical supplies, plus cold weather and mountaineering gear. The weight adds up quickly. Master Sergeant Jeremy Williamson says the men might have to haul as much as 150 pounds through deep snow. Here we've got the little sleds that we pull behind us with all of our gear in it. And uh, a lot of these guys haven't been able to do that before in their careers. And, it's, and this was an opportunity for us to get out and, and really feel what that's like and, and just realize how miserable it can be. It's not all misery, though. Back at base camp, there are hot meals and shuttles into town at night for a little recreation. It turns out that this winter training is not only important for the military, but it's good for the local economy, too. Monarch's director of marketing, Greg Ralph, says the resort provides discounted passes for the Fort Carson group. They are 40 to 50 percent of the people that are on our hill today. It's a slow day, but they're, they're a big percentage of our people right now. I'm also the chair for Chaffee County Visitors Bureau. So I can honestly say they're a big portion of our visitors to the county right now as well. <laughs> Back up on the mountain, Staff Sergeant Rogers takes his beginner group through an area of tightly spaced trees. This is not beginner terrain. Right. Lead them out. Trees or the gully? Trees. It's not just the Army's 10th Special Forces troops out here. A small group of Marines are also learning winter skills so they can go back to their units and train others. Again, Staff Sergeant Rogers. If we end up you know, working with them in Afghanistan, we're all going to be in the same spot. We're all going to have to get down the same mountain. So. The 10th Special Forces group is continuing their training back at Fort Carson now. Williams won't talk about what their next deployment might be. Right now, he says their job, as high-altitude cold-weather specialists, is to be ready for whatever mission they're sent on, whether it's a rescue or doing battle in the mountains. This has been Primetime Postscript, made possible by AARP, and today, Shauna Lewis. See pictures and hear more postscripts on our website, aarp.org radio.
The Audio Information Network of Colorado wants to be sure that you are conveniently and consistently receiving your broadcast. If you are having any technical issues with your AINC equipment or want to learn about the other options you may have to receive our broadcast, please call us at 303-786-7777, extension 108. Again, that is 303-786-7777, extension 108.